We are continuing in our Impact World series in the book of Acts, and as we do that, we have uh, come to a crucial place, a, a big turning point in this, in this book. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, and we see what is the beginning of a transition. We've seen a couple of vignettes of conversions. Last week we took a look at the uh, difference between true and false conversion in the story of Simon the mage, Simon the sorcerer, uh, and the Ethiopian official uh, who both came and confessed or professed Christ and were baptized under the ministry of Philip. Today we're going to see the conversion of the the man who will become the Apostle Paul. I'll begin reading with verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus... There was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food... He regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. 
At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. Father God, open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our eyes that we might see what you have for us in this text. Father, change us. Snatch us away from ourselves. Interrupt our moment, our day, our life, our plans. Lord, do whatever it takes to strip away everything that keeps us from seeing Jesus as he truly is from understanding our own sin nature as it truly is, and from surrendering to you. Father, as we study today, illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Change us from the inside out by your amazing grace that finds the lost and causes the blind to see. We pray in this moment that we would see your light be forever changed. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Confronts us with your grace. Amen. Well, as we uh, open this up in chapter 9 and we look at Saul. Uh, it's a pretty big shift. It's kind of an understatement. Just a moment ago, he was holding the cloaks for those who were stoning Stephen. Just a moment ago, he was leading the charge. He was leading the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem, dragging men and women out of their homes so that they could be imprisoned, even executed. Whatever it took to stamp out this sect following Jesus Christ, 
he was going to do it. Saul was devoting his entire life to eradicating this Christian group. Even at the beginning, in verse 1, we see that Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, he's not just speaking ill. It's not persecuting like he's, you know, he's you know, trolling them on, on Twitter. He's not unliking them or unfriending them or blocking them on Facebook. He is speaking out murderous threats against the church. Notice that nobody from the church needs to come and confront Saul. Because Jesus himself steps in. He goes and he gets these, these certificates of authority from the high priest so that he can go to Damascus, this strong city in, Samaria, or in Syria, and he's going through, going on the road to Damascus so that he can carry this out, and he has some sort of staff with him. There are uh, men who have gone along for the journey. I don't know how many, but they're with him. He's got a team. You might say a team of jackbooted thugs, because that's what they're there to be. They're there to be essentially a Jewish Gestapo. We're shutting this down. It's done. We will end these we will end this movement until Jesus shows up. Now, Jesus shows up, and when he speaks, he knocks Saul to the ground. Jesus seems to have that effect. You may remember when they came to arrest him, and they asked for Jesus, and he said, I am he. And the soldiers fell down. There's power in the name of Jesus. But we see in, in verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't know who this is. So when he says Lord, he's not saying Lord to Jesus per se. He knows that there is some superior entity who is present. He's not ready to acknowledge this is Jesus. That's the farthest thing from his thoughts. He's not looking for Christ. He's not looking to be converted. He's not wrestling with some existential question of who am I, what should I be doing. He knows, he is certain, and he is driven. He is pursuing what he believes to be a mission from God. And Jesus interrupts, knocks him down, even goes so far as to blind him in the blinding light of his holiness. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Now, one way or another, Saul does this. I believe, reading this, that he is not at a place where he is ready to say, okay, Jesus, I get it, I'm in. He is probably moving out of fear of a superior being. This thing that happened, this encounter, was so big, so earth-shaking, 
that the idea of not obeying the voice just didn't even fit. Didn't even make sense. This proud man who was well-known, well-respected, feared by the Christians enough to scatter them from Jerusalem was humbled. Face down, eyes closed. Who are you, Lord? Notice the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. There's something to that. They're with him. They're in this event. They are present. They hear the sound. They see the light. They don't understand the voice. And they don't see Jesus. They don't see the person speaking. They don't have the same personal encounter with Christ that Saul does, even though they're all there together in his presence. Even though they hear the same words, it just doesn't, it's not a voice to them. It's just a sound. It doesn't make any sense to them. They're shocked. They're speechless. But they don't encounter Christ the way Saul encounters Christ. Or perhaps more specifically, I should say, the way Christ encounters Paul, Saul. He doesn't confront these others the way he interrupts Saul. I would venture a guess, and it's only a guess, this is not scripture, so there's no charge. This would seem to me as if these men, having encountered this afterwards, probably would have continued their persecution to whatever extent they were able, probably would have felt betrayed by Saul. That coward, how could he possibly turn his back on what he believes God has said? How could he possibly change from what we know to be God's righteousness? Follow this, Jesus. I don't know that, but that seems to be the effect that Saul's conversion has on those who were aligned with Saul previously. Which is why as he increases in influence, they conspired to kill him. It's why when he gets back to Jerusalem and he debates with the Hellenistic Jews, that opposition turns to persecution and they want to kill him. We can't win. Let's eliminate this problem. Now, as we work through this, it's easy for us to stop after uh, after verse ten. It's easy, or verse nineteen. I mean, after we get to that place, it's easy for us to see Saul having been knocked down, having been had his sight restored when Ananias comes and lays his hands on him. And then just stop as if that's the end of this story. But it doesn't seem to be, as we read through this, the flow of the story continues until we get to a transition to Peter's ministry. That's all the way down in verse 32. But what happens next with Saul seems to be part and parcel of his conversion. It's like there's one story here told in a few different 
vignettes, a few different scene changes. We see Saul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus just disrupts everything. Then we see God speak to Ananias in Damascus. And Damascus, uh, Ananias of Damascus is sort of uh, resistant. Not surprisingly, he's heard the stories. And the Lord says, just go, do this. And his obedience then leads to him encountering Saul. So then we see the next piece where Ananias actually goes to Saul and he lays his hands on him and he speaks to him the words that God has given him to speak. And in that moment, everything about Saul's life changes. I think as we look at this, he's not converted until after Ananias speaks to him. And the scales fall off his eyes, both physically and metaphorically, spiritually. And he sees what he could never see before. And he's immediately baptized. He joins the church. And it's not until after he's baptized that we see that he then starts to restore his own strength, taking in some food. Up until this moment, he's not even thinking about eating and drinking. The only thing that has mattered is this encounter. I have to sort this out. I'm blind. My life is completely shattered. Everything that I have known has been just wiped out. And until Ananias comes and lays his hands on him, prays over him, restores his sight, and passes on, as we saw previously, through the authority of the church, the manifest gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, this happens. Saul can't think of anything else. Once he has entered into this relationship with Christ and been baptized as a part of the church, as his submission to the body of Christ, now, after three days, Paul says, you know, I'm a mite peckish. He gets some food and gets back to what seems like a normal life, only it's never a normal life again. He can never go back to who he was. He can never see things the way he saw them before. Everything has been changed. That light that blinded him is what really opened his eyes. And for the first time, he could really see reality, the reality of Christ. It changed everything about him. Because of that, he was able to then go to the disciples in Damascus, spend some time with them, ostensibly learning from them. I don't think that this man who just encountered Christ went in there saying, hey, let me tell you what I'm going to write to the Roman church. Let me tell you what I'm going to write to the Colossian church and the Philippian church. He went and he fellowshiped with the believers and he was encouraged by them and instructed by them. And he grew because of this just immediately in those first days. And what he could not do is keep his mouth shut. He couldn't. Just like Isaiah In Isaiah 6, he had seen the Lord. 
And he had recognized God's grace to him. As he was humbled on his face, blinded by the holiness of Jesus Christ, Saul realized, I am a sinner. And the only way that I can even survive this is God's grace. And I've had everything wrong. And when he is restored, when he realizes that God has taken from him his sin, all Saul wants to do is to tell everybody about this encounter. Let me tell you about Jesus. I was chasing him down. I was persecuting him. I wasn't chasing him to find him. I was chasing him to destroy him. Destroying the body of Christ. And in the middle of this, when I wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for me. Let me tell you about this Christ, this Messiah. And he goes to the synagogues where they would have respected him already, welcomed him as a teacher, and rather than preaching against Christ, he is preaching Christ. Here, my Lord, send me. His priorities changed, his plans changed, everything about him changed in that moment to the point where he accepted the suffering of persecution. He goes back to Jerusalem. They try to kill him in Damascus. He escapes, goes up to Jerusalem, tries to meet with the believers there. They don't want him. Why would they? He tried to kill them. But he does, we don't have a record here of anything that even sounds like Saul's you know, chagrined by it. He's not angry about it. He understands. Because for the first time ever, he understands the grace and character of God like he never could have imagined before. So the suffering that he goes through, the rejection that he goes through with the disciples, okay, it's whatever. I got this coming. I deserve hell. And Jesus gave me life, gave me heaven. Whatever you need to do with me, Lord, so be it. And he embraces it as God's tool in his life. And so Barnabas, the son of encouragement, you may remember him from back in chapter 4, when the believers were in one accord and sharing all their belongings, and Barnabas was the first person mentioned by name who sells off a piece of his property and brings the money to lay at the apostles' feet. Now, here he is, taking Saul under his wing. There's no indication here that he was with Saul, but he had heard. Maybe Saul told him. More likely he had heard from others, from those who accompanied Saul from Damascus back to Jerusalem. And he had heard about how Saul preached the word even when persecuted. He had heard that Saul had fearlessly stood up when they wanted to kill him. And he didn't stop. And he goes to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and says, Look, this guy's received the same grace we have. He sinned. He sinned against God and he sinned against us. And Jesus died for him and gave him the Holy Spirit, the same as he died for you and me and gave us the Holy Spirit. Well, the believers embraced him, brought him in, He's preaching until the Hellenistic Jews tried to kill him and they send him off. The church that had rejected him now embraces him. 
And for his protection, they take him down to Caesarea and ship him off to Tarsus. Not, not coincidental that they're shipping him off to his hometown. Where is he from? He goes back home to Cilicia, the city of Tarsus. Saul is protected by the body for the sake of Christ. Now, without Saul there to lead the charge, to keep the, the fires of persecution stoked in his absence, or shall we say in his rebirth, without him to lead it, the persecution wanes. The church finds a period of peace, and they are strengthened, and they grow, and the word is preached freely, at least for a while. As we look at this story, the core reality that we want to grab from this is that seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. Just as we saw in Paul's life, Saul here, Paul later, it's true for all of us. Seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. Now, I could go into a whole lot of preaching about this right now, and I'm going to try as hard as I can to stick to the format that the text provides. But one thing is very clear. There's no room in Scripture, no room for a casual Christian who says, yeah, you know, that Jesus seems pretty good. My life isn't going so well, so, you know, if I start going to church, maybe I can... I can find a place where I belong. Yeah, you know, they've got really fun music. I really appreciate, you know, the feeling I get when I go there. And, and I got some people I can talk to, and, and that's good. It's a, it's a better life. It's kind of, you know, it's a good way for me to find my best life now. There is zero tolerance or example of that kind of life in the New Testament at all. Instead, what we see is a radical transformation when we encounter the living Christ. I think we can see from Saul's example some things that will be helpful to us. Now, this same story is told again by Saul himself in Acts chapter 22. You can flip there and, and see it. And we'll see it again in chapter 26. And Paul alludes to it and recounts perhaps parts of it in several of his letters. There's a dynamic that we will we'll see that comes out of it. And we'll get to it a little bit later on. But the, the grace that, that he encounters, the change that he goes through, much like Isaiah, runs through the rest of Saul's life. It has upended everything he thought he knew. Everything he once held dear, he counts as loss for the sake of knowing this glorious, precious Savior. In Acts chapter 22, it really starts in uh, 21 toward the end as, as he is, uh, he's there, he's being arrested or he's being uh, confronted and and he says to this uh, commander in the barracks of, of these soldiers, hey, can I, can I talk to you a little bit? 
They're a little shocked because he speaks Greek. Let me just read it for you from Acts 21. Uh, we'll start with verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the wilderness some time ago? Fake news here, right? So this happens to, to Saul, same as it happens to us. You, you get accused of things. The devil works really hard to accuse you. It's, I don't know why he has to work so hard to come up with false accusations, because the truth of who we are is worthy of all condemnation anyway. But this is what happens. He's arrested for certain things. The, the rumor becomes, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the wilderness some time ago? 39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, now this is significant. Here is Saul talking to a Roman soldier speaking Greek. Now he is speaking in Aramaic, the language of the Jews. And he says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, this caught their attention, right? They became very quiet. Then Paul said, he's going by Paul at this point, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. You may remember him from an earlier chapter. He was the one who brought wisdom that said, if this movement is from God, you can't stop it. And if it isn't from God, it's going to peter out on its own. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them, from the high priest and the council, to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said. Go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Stop for a moment. Ananias was a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of the way. When we encounter him in chapter 9, he equates Christ with those who call on the name of the Lord. Those who did not call on the name of Christ... In the mind of Ananias, do not call on the name of the Lord. And yet Saul here, Paul here, in dealing with these Jews, points out not the Christianity of Ananias, but the reality of the respect he had had as a good, noble, God-fearing Jew. Verse 13, he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. The God of our ancestors has chosen you 
Not Saul alone, but Saul to believe. He's chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear his words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Notice Saul or Paul has fast forwarded to that place in Jerusalem. Verse 19, Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to the other to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Saul's entire life, his entire trajectory was changed by this encounter with Christ. And as he encountered the living Christ, it changed not only how he believed, but how he lived. As we see here in our core reality, when we encounter Jesus, change is significant. Seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. 